You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has smicha. Hi, I'm here with you, Sokolakowski. And in honor of Black History Month, we are going to choose, each of us, a film that is important and highlights, I think, uh, something significant about uh, the history of Blacks in America and specifically about their role in in film. Now, neither of these films that we're going to talk about are part of the Blacks exploitation films of the 70s or part of um, uh, films that have been overlooked in terms of their significance towards the story of the African-American experience in the United States. Um, the film that I want to uh, recommend is a film that I actually wasn't familiar with, and I was very surprised because I, I, I know my movies pretty well. But this was a film that I just found out about recently called Odds Against Tomorrow. And it was um, a film that was uh, produced by Harbell, the Harbell Production Company. And the Harbell Production Company is actually Harry Belafonte himself, Harbell, who stars in the film. He was, um, at that time, a wealthy um, person, a person who was known, had done uh, a number of, uh, of, of star turns, uh, known most primarily as a singer, a calypso singer, as you know. Uh, he didn't, and even I think in his career, he didn't really come close uh, to dominating the screen the way Sidney Poitier did. But this film was clearly meant to be a uh, a story that was shining a mirror, if not a spotlight, on American race relations at the end of the 50s. It's, the structure of it is a film noir, which means most of the characters um, aren't good. They all have elements of positivity, but you can see the negative that is scraping all around them. And as you know, in most of the film noirs, they don't really end well. <laughs> Maybe there's a couple people who escape, but most of the people there are flawed. And you sort of realize that some of them are just train wrecks happening, waiting to happen. That is the case here in this film. This film has basically three stars besides Harry Belafonte. Uh, it has Robert Ryan. Robert Ryan made a career of playing villains. Um, in in the sixties uh, and in the seventies, he was still making films, but there he was sort of like this grizzled, you know, <laughs> like a pale shadow of himself. Uh, he uh, in films like Crossfire um, and, and, uh, and Deadly Encounter. I mean, he 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 was menace. Uh, and he didn't have to wear a uh, a Jason mask or anything to 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 indicate that. Uh, knowing Ryan, just watching Ryan walk was almost like nightmare on Elm Street to see him. He was he was uh, he was a person that um, and unlike Richard Widmark, who sort of played over the top, uh, you know, he was like with a cackle. Ryan was just you know, in his sort of stoic ugliness uh, was 
radiated menace because you never knew when he could shoot out. In this film, um, Ryan uh, it, it plays a like he sort of affects somewhat of a southern accent, uh, but clearly a, a bigot. <laughs> you know, someone who really hates blacks. Uh, the N word is used uh, quite a bit. At least I don't know how many times, but it's used enough by Ryan. Uh, and he is someone who uh, is down on his luck, who's an ex-con, um, who there's hints to uh, his tragic past. But clearly, as he says, I spoil everything. Women are somehow very attracted to him because he's such a bad guy. Um, and uh, I'll talk about the women in a minute. The other actor uh, is Ed Begley. Now, Ed Begley is, is a real standard character actor. It's like, I know you've probably seen him in a lot of films. Um, I, I have Ed Begley met, etched in my mind of a film from this period where he was in um, the uh, um, 10, uh, 12 Angry Men. Uh, Ed Begley is one of those uh, jurists that needs to be convinced by Henry Fonda. Uh, and, and he, I think, was, uh, was, a, was a star on stage as well. Uh, I think this is probably just like I was mentioning Harold Gould last week that this that that Harold Gould stint on soap. I think this is probably the best I've ever seen Ed Begley because there's you 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 he plays a policeman who seemingly has been himself uh, exposed as a criminal and now I don't know, maybe had served time. It's not clear. Maybe internal affairs has busted him and taken him away, but he feels that he has been uh, robbed of his dignity and what he deserves. So Ed Begley uh, decides to, he is the mastermind of what he thinks is a perfect bank robbery. And he enlists Ryan, a desperate person, and also Harry Belafonte. Now, what's Harry Belafonte doing there? Harry Belafonte is there because he represents, in 1959, um, a black swinger. You have to realize that although there was, uh, there was a lot of outrage over the state that blacks were living in, the fact that they were um, being forced into ghetto-like conditions and not being able to live in the neighborhoods that, were, that, that provided better schools and transportation, but there was also an element of the black community that was somewhat on the rise. Blacks that were had talent and entertainment, blacks that were in sports. And there was this uh, fear, and it was uh, uh, articulated by many in the black preaching community that the that the tinsel and mummon of Hollywood and entertainment would somehow wrap its uh, uh, tentacles around a number of, of Black people and ruin them. And that's sort of what uh, Belafonte is. He's not a super recording star like he was in real life, but he has a job uh, as an entertainer in a lounge that seems to be run by the mafia. Um, and uh, he has a penchant for gambling. Uh, he is uh, he has a marriage that uh, that is uh, that he's already uh, that is broken, um, and uh, although he's supremely devoted uh, to his daughter, uh, one of the reasons why it seems the marriage broke up 
despite you know the the heat that exists between uh, Belafonte and his beautiful wife, is that she believes that what needs to be what needs to happen is rising up from the bootstraps to uh, to work with the white community to try to better their life. Whereas Belafonte's character is a character, Johnny is a character that is very comfortable in his skin and also has a tremendous amount of animosity towards the white community, although he benefits from it. He believes that, um, you know, he, he, he believes we need to stay with our own kind. He believes that the white liberals really don't, are treating them in a, um, in a demeaning uh, sort of way, uh, a condescending, demeaning way. And it's clear, although the movie doesn't go into exposition, that that's one of the reasons why uh, his marriage has fallen apart. He, maybe it's because his marriage has fallen apart, but we don't know, but he has a penchant, as I said, for gambling, and he's in debt quite a bit with the mafia. And um, he, because of his temper, uh, he ends up being in a situation where um, he has to come up with a certain amount of money or his, his ex-wife and child are going to be threatened by the mafia. So the movie sort of cheats a little bit because you know, it, 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 it paints Belafonte with the problems of, the, of, of what's going on of blacks at that time which is too much fascination with the, with the fast life and money, driving an incredible looking sports car like Belafonte does, um, getting caught up in the white man's world of gambling, um, et cetera. But it also wants you to see what sort of sweet person he is as he spends the day with his daughter and how much he cares for her. And the only reason he agrees to be part of this bank robbery is because he wants to protect his daughter. Um, Begley, as I said, is the mastermind. And, um, you know, he realizes that Ryan uh, is frustrated because he can't get a job anywhere and he needs some money. And this, of course, will result in, uh, you know, $50,000 for each of them, which, of course, in 1959 was a huge amount of money, maybe even more. Okay. Um, the why do they need now again, the film um uh, was directed by Robert Wise. And I have to tell you, I, I'm very familiar with Robert Wise's films. You know, I would say that many of his films are some of the films that, that you know, West Side Story and others uh, were films that, you know, that, 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 that really filmed my consciousness when I was a kid. But this was a film I wasn't familiar with. And, and, and I really believe that this film is, is, um, is shot in a way that, greater than almost any of his films. He worked with Val Luton as a assistant director. And there are films where, where you see his, his ability to, to use the camera in, in astonishing ways. But I don't think he, I, I think this might be his, in terms of the way this film looks and the, and the, and the, 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 the close-ups and the sense of mood. Uh, and I know he did, the, he did a, a film called The Haunting as well. This film really, in a way, is beautiful to look at. Now, I don't know about the, the novel that it was that, that by William McGivern that this was based on, but I do know that, uh, that the um, blacklisted Jewish screenwriter, Abraham Polanski, was 
the writer of this film. And you could see that this is a, a, a very sophisticated film. It doesn't go in for uh, easy exposition or cheap laughs. Uh, it, is, it really is, my, again, Polanski, um, uh, again, I don't know his complete over, but this is a very compact, solid screenplay. And the reason why, why does it need a Black person? And the reason why it needs a black person, you know, the Begley needs one is because they are planning to rob a up a bank in upstate or at least 100 miles from New York. Um, it's a fictional town that they say they're robbing Milton, New York, but it really is. Uh, I think it's Hudson is really, I think, the name of the city. I think it's I think Hudson is the place where um, where it was uh, Hudson, New York. I'm not sure if you know where that is, Yitzchuk. Hudson, New York. Um, and uh, it has incredible, in my mind, um, uh, location shots in New York City and in Hudson, where, you know, it's, it's, it's not, we talked about it's a wonderful life, which of course was a, which, which was a back lot, a city that they created. This, as you can tell, is a real town in upstate New York. And um, this is the and, and the reason why they need a, a, a black person for the job is because there is a diner in town that um, uh, that a black man uh, runs, and he uh, brings every Thursday evening to the bank sandwiches and coffee to the group of accountants who are uh, getting the paychecks ready for the Friday paycheck for all the major industries in town. So therefore, all the money that's going to be given to uh, the wage earners is ready at Thursday night. And Begley has figured this out. And if they, since at 6.15 every Thursday night, uh, the fellow from the drugstore who's black comes by, they open the door slightly to get the sandwiches. That's the moment that the three of them are able, in Begley's mind, to be able to make their move. And that's why they need, okay. So in a way, you know, this sort of, you know, coming up with this idea of why we need a black person really puts the black uh, Belafonte against the white bigoted Ryan who plays, his name is Slater. And you're able to see that both of them are extremely flawed. Uh, the film is called Odds Against Tomorrow because on one level, um, Belafonte, the putative star, is a gambler. So in a way, he's playing the odds that he's not going to get caught and he needs this to, to pay off the mafia. Uh, but really, I think the reason why it's called Odds Against Tomorrow, at least based on the way the, the film works, is because what for what sort of better world can grow out of the racial strife that was gripping the country in the late 1950s and early 60s, which was right after that film? What was the tomorrow? Because right now, the, the, they were, in a way, sort of like in the, as in the defiant ones, they have to work together. But it's their hatred for each other, which undermines the possibility of the bank robbery to work. Um, you know, in a way, you're rooting, you know, for Ed Begley because he has such pathos. Um, he's not a pretty person. He's not as pretty as Belafonte or Ryan or 
or anyone, but the camera loves him. And he really comes across as an everyman who just wants a score. And, and, and in fact, in many ways, he comes between the two of them. He, in a way, understands them. He's a psychologist uh, of sorts. And he makes sure that Ryan's bigotry doesn't rear its head. And he does it in a way that's not um, uh, preachy. Um, and therefore, you sort of are rooting for him to maybe get the money, you know, and maybe, you know, uh, again, so some people will be, people will lose their paychecks. Um, and, and the film does a great job generating sympathy, but not in a, a maudlin sort of way. The, um, but, the, but the message of the film, of course, is that those odds, what are the odds? Because right now, both are going towards destruction. You have, you know, the bigot who, who basically, you know, just can't stand the black people and can't stand uh, their ascension, can't stand their success. And just, you know, the Southerner who's still in a way fighting the Civil War and hates them. And then you have the, the, the black who hates the white and doesn't believe the white community has anything to offer them. Um, and yet uh, is not really ready to adjust and to take on civil responsibility, the type of civil and familiar responsibilities. Um, the black character, of course, it, it is almost there, but if they could somehow, if the white character would trust them, and that's part of what the what happens in the in the in, in Polanski's screenplay. Um, there's a souped up station wagon, a beat up station wagon, which Begley has made sure has a, a motor like a race car, because that's what they're going to use to escape from town. And to me, that's sort of a metaphor of, 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 of what this dynamic is. It's sort of like on the outside, a, a, like an old junker station wagon from the 1940s, but it's got an incredible engine that could really take it places because the system is old and decrepit. However, what, but there is something there that, that w w if we mine it correctly, could really get us an escape from this situation. But unfortunately, the keys to that station wagon, um, uh, he, uh, Ryan will not trust the black man with them. And because of that, that and I'm giving some stuff away. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why the, the robbery doesn't work. But, but it's meant to symbolically show you that that lack of trust. Um, it's uneasy. Obviously, the two cultures are different, but they, there's a possibility of them working together. But the mistrust that they have, the anger that, that Belafonte shows when he's mistrusted, um, because as the robbery goes awry, um, the two of them become the antagonists towards each other. And the, the $150,000 isn't even relevant. <laughs> At this point, in the streets of Hudson, New York, or Milton, New York, as they called it, <laughs> these two guys are now hunting each other. And they end up, the end of the film, they actually end up, uh, just like in Cagney's White Heat, they end up on top of these, um, uh, these uh, towers of uh, gasoline towers, 
<laughs> and and you realize with both of them having guns, <laughs> that's not going to end up. That's not going to end up too well for them. Uh, I should also add that the, the film has uh, two Academy Award winners in it in supporting roles, uh, Shelley Winters and Gloria Graham. Uh, both of these actresses won Academy Awards. Um, Gloria Graham had won an Academy Award before that uh, for The Bad and the Beautiful. And of course, Shelley Winters uh, wins the Academy Award uh, for A Patch of Blue, um, where she plays a Jewish mother of a blind girl. Um, with Cindy Portier, by the way. So Shelley um, Winters, by the way, was was considered a very liberal uh, person in Hollywood, and Belafonte picked up at this picture. She's completely wasted in this film, though. She plays Robert Ryan's love interest, like they're living together as a couple, and she understands how volatile he is, and she loves him, and she realizes how flawed he is, and, you know, he can't help, you know, although he tries to be nice to her, he knows he's going to cheat on her and not be honest with her. Um, and he ends up cheating on her, although they're not married, with Gloria Graham, who um, she only has about seven or eight, nine minutes on screen, maybe less. But boy, she is a presence. Again, I, I guess Gloria Graham, as you know, Yitzhak was a violet in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. She was the, the one who, um, um, you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart as is able to help her as George Bailey, but in the nightmare world, uh, she's just a uh, a woman of the night. And of course, she was very much a sultry actress. I don't think any you know if you look at her features, talk about sultry sultriness. You know, maybe you would have also um, uh, you know the the um, uh, yeah, Gloria Graham. They are. I'm not saying they're the most beautiful, but they are sultry, and that's what uh, you know. Gloria Graham is um, in this film, and the couple of minutes that she has, she plays like a mother of a you know of, of, in a in a loveless marriage who is fascinated by uh, Ryan's character, and uh, just the way they interact together is is dynamite. <laughs> it's like. It'll st it's a dynamite scene, you know, the, the, the fact that he knows how evil he is, he knows how bad he is, he knows how he's going to cheat on, you know, Shelley Winter's character, and she plays, you know, of course, this, you know, this saintly-like character, and Gloria Graham is her friend, but here she is, and, and, and that sort of, like, gives you the, the sense that um, this is a character who probably cannot be redeemed, he's uh, somewhat irredeemable. Um, there is a lot of great shots of children in this film as well, uh, small children and teenagers and young children playing. And I think Wise and, and Polanski want us to believe that although the adults seem to be very much at odds with each other uh, against tomorrow, like playing the odds and pushing in the negative, the children in this film, and there's you know a number of black children in the beginning of the film, and and, and white children and black and white children playing together. The the film gives the uh, hope, real hope of uh, of racial equality and understanding. Uh, there are uh, without being preachy about it. There's no character that gets up there and talks about it. But whether it's seeing white and black faces together at a at a PTA meeting that's held in someone's house. Um, uh, or, or just seeing uh, what even small town life in Milton can be, uh, that there is hope. 
the problem is, of course, is that you know the the issues that are embodied by these by the, the two antagonists is something that um, can't be controlled, and it's sort of in a way uh, prophetic for what the 1960s would bring. Um, it, it's a warning shot that that Belafonte is really trying uh, to do. And again, you, you have to appreciate the fact uh, that he put his own money behind it uh, to make this to make this film. Uh, there is a little bit of Harry Belafonte singing, um, and uh, I guess that's a treat for others. You can also catch that Cicely Tyson is in an uncredited role, so it definitely, in many ways, bespeaks some of the what's called the aristocracy of. African-American uh, film actors you can find uh, in this film and in a way that I think uh, doesn't demean them. So it's, uh, like I say, it's, 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 it's a film that um, beautiful to look at, a story that is compelling and really Polanski understands that, you know, you don't overstuff a film. You know, if you have three major protagonists in a film, that's a dynamic that can that can take you all the way. Um, sometimes two won't be able to carry it, but this this yin and yang, and Ed Begley in the middle, I think it really creates you know a perfect dynamic of of a program that it really does not feel dated, despite the fact that it was made in 1959. So that's my pick. Odds against tomorrow, Yitzchak. What do you got for us? Well, I, I'm uh, kind of breaking away from my, although I've been doing that recently, uh, going more towards older, you know, 50s and older. I'm taking something from the late 60s, but it's in black and white. And it's a movie that I, even though I recognize the greatness of this film, and it really is a great film, it's a movie I don't like because it's, I, I like feel-good movies. I like happy movies. I like I like monster movies that are interesting or, you know, whether they're funny or goofy or they're intellectually stimulating. This one certainly is intellectually stimulating, but it it is quite horrific, although maybe not by the standards, of, you know, that would start to come out in the 70s and 80s and, and into today. But it's really the movie that was the bridge between those two is Night of the Living Dead from 1968. It's really the last of the of the kind of classic horror type of films and the first of the of the really gory kind of slasher films, although there were gory movies before that. In fact, the reason why the movie was called Night of the Living Dead, it was originally supposed to be the Night of the Flesh Eaters, and there was another uh, kind of gory uh, monster film about mad scientists uh, not too much before that, I think in 64, called The Flesh Eaters. And in order to avoid confusion between these two independent films, The Flesh Eaters, they changed it from Night of the Flesh Eaters to Night of the Living Dead. And I've never seen The Flesh Eaters, but I understand it is, uh, <coughs> it is, is very gory for, for something from 1964. Uh, this movie... First of all, it has a lot of uh, interesting, you know, aspects to it. It's a totally independent film um, that really, uh, you know, captured 
a, a frightening story about you know what's going on around them in the world you don't get that much of an explanation as to why these monsters they're, they're never called zombies <coughs> in the movie they're they're always called ghouls or fiends or something like that but the these living dead these very gory cannibalistic uh, monsters that are corpses that that are because of some kind of uh, radiation from outer space <coughs> are rising from the dead and and killing people and eating them uh you know and you see them eating their their organs and it's, it's very very scary and gory but the real scary part is how the people are dealing with this going on and the reason why I picked this for Black History Month is that the protagonist is Dwayne Jones, who was, you know, a, a, a stage actor before and not not a very major one. The movie was made uh, right outside of Pittsburgh, and it was really just local stage amateur actors that was that were made. But it really, they all did. A, a, a great job and particularly Dwayne Jones did a, a, a fantastic job and he was an African-American man who was cast as the main protagonist in the film, the really the hero of the film and when George Romero was who was the director and the <coughs> and the co-screenwriter of the film together with John Russo who we always run into every year at Monster Bash. John Russo comes to, to Monster Bash and uh, some other folks from, from Night of Living Dead because it's in Pittsburgh and they're all locals. Uh, but Romero was not looking for a black actor. It just happened to be that Dwayne Jones was the best person to play Ben, the this main character in the movie. And really that that is why i pick this uh you know he he's not any type of a uh you know for black history month he's not any type of stereotype and also he's he's the hero and he and you know he perhaps you know you might want to say that kind of like a positive stereotype of a strong black man but not over it, it's not an exploitative way it's he's not uh, you know any any of these black exploitation type of characters? He's just he's just him, and that was really you know very very much groundbreaking. Um, he only made a few other movies after that. Uh, a lot of them were were the same type of genre type of films, but none of none of them were as good as Night of Living Dead. But he really his i i would think the the main thing that really stuck out is that generally in these types of movies beforehand you know i'm thinking about you know low budget independent films maybe not as good as this one but you know you'll see something like a, a movie like the killer shrews which is uh, you know uh, at the beginning of the movie you know you, there's a black character and he is the first victim of the of the monsters in that movie and and it's not the only one like that but there are many many examples like that and in these and, and that was 10 years earlier than this but in these movies typically when you had a black character if they weren't playing some kind of a native 
characters. You think they would be getting killed off pretty soon, yeah, right? Almost the way Sam. You, you, or, right. or they'd be some kind of comic relief. Mm -hmm. Sort There's of like Samuel Jackson in, uh, in Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> Samuel Jackson gets killed off of that. And that was, you know, so there is this idea. I think there's a sort of a trope that the black characters are going to get killed off. Um, and that doesn't happen in in uh, in the Night of the Living Dead. Right. And I think uh, I think well, part of it. I don't want to give away the movie because it's kind of a surprise. ending. Yeah, OK, but part of it, I think, is 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 that he's not the fact that he's black is not the issue. Like in, yeah. in, in Odds Against Tomorrow, every black character, you know, is representative of some sort of, you know, attitude uh, towards the issue of race relations, uh, which is what the film is really, you know, is, is, is at the heart of the film. I think what, you, what you're saying is, is that Night of the Living Dead, it just happens to have a black character as its hero. But right. we don't necessarily, it's not a plot point. It's not like, yeah. you know, the discussion of him being black is, is essential. He's not meant to, to be a message about blackness or about uh, the black experience in the United States, despite the fact, I don't know, uh, the, the film is murky about why everything is happening, right? It's some sort of, the film doesn't go into an exposition about why, uh, you know, these, these, these ghouls are coming. Something about the radiation coming from the Van Allen belt. And I think that they ha actually have a, a local... Uh, horror host chili billy or Chil uh, was the horror host for you know kind of like uh zachary and some of these other horror hosts he was the local pittsburgh horror host was chili billy cardile who passed away about two three years ago and he plays a news a news reporter on the television news and that's the very slight bit of exposition that you have and it's they don't really go into it the way they usually do that's another Another thing that goes away from the regular monster movie tropes where they go into so much exposition, which is something as a child I always loved about those types of movies. And maybe that's another thing that maybe makes me uncomfortable about this movie is we, you don't have the ex exposition. Right. It, 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 has, it has ambiguity, which, you know, why this has happened? Was there a nuclear war? What are these dead people coming? Right. Who cares? Right. The point is, is that, you know, that exposition weakens I guess, although I haven't seen the film, but I can just to argue it weakens the 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 intensity of the drama, you know, right. between the ones that are alive in this farmhouse and surrounded by seemingly, um, you know, a, a, a uncountable amount of dead people out there, right? Because because and, and it is a very tense drama. It is really look, you know, I, I look, you know. I, I, talking about zombie films i think one of the reasons why the films uh, have such a hold on us um is because we as you know are, are, are we fear our mortality we fear death and the idea that the dead come back not in the glorious uh that we envision you know lost in love but that they actually are somehow less than the beings they were when they were alive, that they are these husks that are rotting away. It really, really touches all the nightmares, you know, much more than, uh, you know, than let's say a Frankenstein or a werewolf, which is, you know, uh, we're talking about something that's part and parcel of our existence that we know, whether it's our grandparent who passed away or our parent who passed away or images of COVID uh, persons who are dying, the idea that these dead aren't just below the ground, but they actually rise and that there's something they want from us 
and that the, we can become them, right? That they that somehow with their touch or with their bite, that they can somehow, you know. And this, I, this was the first movie that really had that type of an idea. Again, they don't use the word zombie, even though this was the first of the modern zombie movies. This inspired the whole genre that we have today. But it, it's really also a point for Black History Month is that all of the zombie movies before this were the authentic voodoo, uh, voodoo type right, of right, right. Those which, which were based on the West Indies um, culture that the slaves that were there uh, brought from Africa the magics that uh, resulted in voodoo, meaning you could actually bring a person back from the dead. But like those films that we have from the 40s and 50s, you know, you would have, you know, the bone in the nose type of thing, right? And, you know, with the with the heavy Jamaican accent. Um, here, you have a character, which I, 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 I'm going to just say what I think your point is, is that who cares? In other words, Black history means this is a character that could have been white, could have been Black. It happens to be Black. And therefore, look where we've come. Here is a film that is, uh, you know, is that, that, that creates the genre. And you're saying it should be applauded because uh, the, 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 the main character is a Black man. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that, we're, that, we're, that we're, we're putting a flag for racial equality. But it is; it does show racial equality because yeah, because it's post-racial. Yes, I, I you know, I think a similar for me a similar Lumet's Q and A, where the mayor is under attack by, uh, you know, there's a terrible publicity of something that's going on, and his advisors are there, and there's a character with the yarmulke. There's a guy who's obviously an Orthodox Jew, and I'm I'm seeing this film, and I'm saying. Are they going to make some sort of statement about him? Is he going to go make a bracha? Right? Is is going to is he going to have to run out of the, the the office because it's going to be Shabbos or something? Or is he going to give some sort of Jewish wisdom and say, "Oy vey, you know, we're not really doing this right." Nah, he's just a guy. <laughs> he's just a yid. He just happens to be Jewish, right? Now, of course, he was just a minor character just for a minute. But I said, now we've made it. We don't have to be archetypes. We don't have to be. Uh, uh, dispensing wisdom. We don't have to be the noble Negro. You don't have to be the foolish Stephen Fetchett uh, uh, buffoon, right? You can be a hero like any symbol of humanity. And that's what Dwayne Jones is in The Night of the Living Dead. Um, right? I think that's, that's, that's your point. Yeah. And in that way, unfortunately, though, you know, it, 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 as we said, right after that, you really have the beginning of Shaft, Superfly, and all the black exploitation films. And you have Melvin Van Peebles and his independent filmmaking and, 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 and a lot of, you know, uh, filmmaking, you know, uh, uh, documentary filmmaking, other things really entrenching the idea of black separateness. So, you know, you really, um, in that way, it, it, it did not indicate uh, a pattern did it the night of the living dead i mean as much as it's historical and important uh it seems like hollywood still when it had a black character was was much more comfortable in either making films for blacks you know blackula superfly whatever you're going to call it um, and they had that earlier in history too i mean you had the, the all black movies of the, the of course right and those were Right. Anyway, but 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 these were films that I think spoke to the ideas of black power um, and the idea of, of of fighting the man, 
Um, and, and, and here it was, you know, the Jews in Hollywood, you know, in, in, in the studios, they were going to rake in the dough anyway about it, right? We'll just make these films as opposed to just saying, look, we're, we're going to cast a black character and, and that's it. So I think that um, I think both of these films really, uh, in a way, you know, didn't necessarily, as we say in Hebrew, neither of them were hikash roshim, right? Neither of them actually created roots. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the zombie, uh, like I said, the zombie genre is is something which they're still going back to. And again, we could get into all discussion as we talked about, about films that fell into the public domain. And that's, I think, part of the whole, uh, the arc of the Day of the Dead. I know well, what it's this called. One, this one, The Night of the Living Dead, just like Charade that we spoke about last right. week, right. It, it was because of a snafu in the production that they just neglected to put. So it immediately fell into the public domain. And I remember... Uh, meeting one of the actors who since passed away and discussing this with him and it really bothered him a lot they he said it was 40 years of hell that you know that this movie you know that they really cared a lot about uh and they put a lot of effort into this movie um how how unfortunate it was that it, it fell into the public domain and didn't and they weren't able to collect any of the royalties and things that they felt they deserved from this movie that really became very iconic uh you know but it, it it's it's not i don't think it i think it would still be iconic without it having been it's not like the the uh, uh, it's a wonderful life that really became famous just because it was in the public domain it really even though it's a great movie it wasn't appreciated as much uh until it fell into the public domain this one uh, I think would be appreciated for what it is with or without being in the public domain. You know, it's, uh, and again, it's not something I enjoy. It's something that really disturbs me. It's a, I find it to be a very disturbing and uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, it, again, we, we should say again, it does have for its time, a lot of explicit violence and gore, you know, as they're fighting the, uh, these undead. And, um, and I think that's part of why, and people enjoy it. You know, people, for some reason, again, you know, we could bring in a psychologist to explain why there's sort of like a, a tingling feeling you get when someone takes a shotgun and shoots the head off of a dead guy, you know, like, like, like what, what is, what is really, what, what uh, synapses in the brain and what, what, what buttons are being pushed there? It's like, no, death isn't going to come for me. No, I'm not going to face my own mortality, right? So even, you know, this body that's falling apart with his, you know, with his limbs, you know, barely attached, I'm going to shoot this head off. And that somehow makes you feel good, right? Somehow, as much, somehow the fear is somehow abated, the fear that we have of becoming uh, a, 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 not a zombie, but a corpse that looks like that. I think that's really part of why um, it it, it really holds this fascination. Uh, Like fighting the zombies is in a way uh, uh, like, like, like what's kicking in is the, I believe the desire to live the survival instinct because the zombie is is Moira on the fact that, that, that and you too, buddy, you know, the zombie coming for you, means that you're going to lose your hold on this on this earthly uh, plane and i think you know the the fighting back it isn't just like you know, fighting against the the indians uh, in the cowboy pictures 
And I think that's part of the reason why, again, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen any of the films. I talk like I, I mean, I've seen um, pastiches of them and I sort of know what they're about. But I think that's part of the reason why the films have uh, a life and, and why people still find themselves going back to it. Um, you know, of course, uh, Robert Kirkman um, drew the graphic novel. Uh, I think there's, I, I know there's hundreds and hundreds of issues of it called the, it's called The Walking Dead which again becomes a uh, uh i believe it's on showtime or hbo or one of the AMC. premium hmm? what's on AMC? amc it's on amc but again it really you know it draws from the same well as the fascination with uh night of the living dead and um yeah kirkman is uh you know um, you know again he's the creator of 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 um the walking dead and of course also uh, invincible which is, you know, which is also a, a sort of not a groundbreaking comic, but a comic that I think also uh, taps into a lot of the, the 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 tropes, but also, you know, is able to turn this uh, these genres inside out. So we see it really still has viability. <laughs> it's the wrong word to use about a zombie, but it definitely has some viability there. But I, I think it's I think it's unique what you're pointing out uh, about its its role, you know that that, that it was abandoned. I don't know if the other films featured uh, black characters uh, in, in a prominent way. I don't know enough about. I mean, the... I mean, in, in today in today's society, though, I think we have reached a a point where you you are going to have more. And people are more comfortable with oh yes yeah. so look uh, clearly i mean this is not 1968 but yeah. um you know whether whether this film was a brick towards that um is to be you know that's 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 very speculative i think but it's probably worth examining again and and seeing it not only as you know the the beginning of a of a new genre and sealing the end of the old horror films but also as something that um produces a a as you say a, a beyond race idea of of looking at human beings isn't it strange that you, you have to have zombies attacking them uh, for us to come to that sort of recognition how 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 much we are all essentially the same um yeah that's the type of crisis that you need definitely um so that's it my friends i think uh for our uh suggestions for this black history month go out and find uh some uh, do your reading um be informed be entertained and watch your step on the way out take care thanks for joining us for another episode from the yeshiva of newark at idt podcast be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode 